Hello and welcome back to Dagish America Presents. I'm your host, Ben Harl. I'm so happy to have the opportunity to talk to you about the industry that I work in. On the last episode, we discussed the importance of monitoring phosphine fumigations, and we discussed some of the equipment required to do so. Hey, if you haven't had a chance yet, please go back and give that episode a listen. I know you'll find it both informative and entertaining. Now, in this episode, we'll be talking about one of the hottest topics concerning phosphine, the potential for phosphine resistance. I get asked all sorts of questions about phosphine resistance, and unfortunately, there's still a lot of confusion in our industry about the subject. So, to help us clear up some of the confusion, we've invited Dr. Tom Phillips to the podcast. Dr. Phillips is a professor of entomology at Kansas State University, where he holds a research and teaching appointment in the field of stored product entomology. He's among the top 2% of researchers in the world according to a recent study at Stanford University, which means he's exactly the kind of expert we want to invite to talk with us about such a hot topic. So, please, help me welcome Dr. Phillips to the podcast. Dr. Phillips, uh, do you mind if I call you Tom? Uh, that'd be great. Call great. Me Tom. All right. That'll be a lot easier for me to, to remember just calling you Tom. So, Tom, thanks a lot for joining us on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. And I guess I just want to kind of start out by giving uh, you an opportunity to introduce yourself to the listeners, kind of let them know who you are, how you're tied to the industry, and kind of what you do. Okay. Well, that's great. I can start right now and then go back in history. Um, I am a professor of entomology at Kansas State University, and I've been here about 14 years. But it all started, I grew up in Pennsylvania. And I went to college as a biology major. So I wasn't really like an insect guy or kid or whatever. Uh, but I decided to go to graduate school. And I determined that entomology is what I thought I'd do. Uh, part of it was I knew that people get hired as an entomologist and for right. jobs. And that's kind of a joke I, I give in my class, that a, an entomologist is basically a biologist with a job. <laughs> and, <laughs> I like that. And, I like that. Uh, and, and anyway, I went to grad school, but I was trained in forest entomology, of all things. But it turns out, you know, I went and I got a master's and a PhD, and, and I thought I would work for the U.S. Forest Service or something like that. There were no jobs, but I was offered a job with the USDA Agriculture Research Service to work on... Uh, stored product insects, and it was located in Madison, Wisconsin, on the campus of University of Wisconsin. So it was a really great place to live, great place to work. I learned a lot. And of course, being with the government, you got to kind of do what they ask. And I got transferred to Hawaii, of all places. There were many other <laughs> possibilities. But there I worked on, and so I should say in Wisconsin, I didn't do any fumigation. I was a non-chemical person. I was learning about pheromones and attractants and traps and ecology and doing research like that. In Hawaii, I worked on quarantine control problems, which many times use fumigants, but these were non-fumigant methods like heat and cold and radiation, really interesting stuff. Oh, sure. Yeah. And and I learned so much there, and particularly about the workings of, of how quarantine works. But I, I wanted to get back to a university, so I took a job at Oklahoma State University in stored products as a stored products professor. My colleague, George Opit, is there right now in the same job I had. That's where I started on fumigation. And it was mainly because 
I was contacted by industry and they needed some help with fumigation. And I got my first gas chromatograph so I could measure fumigant levels and got into it there. And then I moved to K-State for several reasons, but one of them was it, it is the wheat capital of the world. And it's also kind of the stored grain research capital because we have a grain science department. The entomology department has a history in that. The USDA has a very nice lab with about seven. There were At that time, there were nine scientists doing wow. work on, yeah, on stored grain entomology from all levels, like very applied to very basic. Anyway, so um, I've been here and I, I do what a lot of College of Ag professors do is I, I do research, I train graduate students, and I teach a little bit. That's terrific. And that's kind of my background. Yeah, and I've, I've got the best job in the world, and I'm, I'm really happy to, uh, to be here doing that. Yeah, I like the fact that you said that entomology is, yeah, <laughs> they're, they're hiring. That's the, that's the one thing that I really like about the pest control industry. It seems like it's one of the most recession-proof and secure industries that you can work in. There's always room for more people to work in pest control, well, and entomology for that matter. And so it's a really good industry to get into. Yes, yes. And I've had uh, students who have gone into industry, mainly with pesticide companies, but sometimes with applicators. And even myself, I, when I was looking for a way to get out of Hawaii, <laughs> I interviewed for an industry job in kind of pest control, and it would have involved fumigating. Oh, yeah. Uh, but then I got the one in, in Oklahoma. But yes, it's, it's absolutely true. I mean, the uh, reason I like my job, it's they're very rare, you know, faculty jobs, but I have a lot of academic freedom, as you might imagine. But yeah, my, um, you know, I train PhDs and I've had two of them who have, two or maybe three who've gone into industry with big companies. So I'm very, very happy for that. And yeah, oh. you're right. There's, there's a lot in pest control. We've discovered here, we're trying to bring back a bachelor's degree program in entomology, which we had 30 or 40 years ago, because there are a fair number of jobs by doing some research Several have the word insects or entomology in the title or in the job description. So I'll put out a little ad for anybody out there who <laughs> wants, to, wants to go to school for entomology. Yeah, I, I definitely think we need more people doing that <laughs> to help bolster our industry. So, you know, I'm going to dive into the topic that we're going to be discussing today now, if you don't mind. And uh, over the last 10 to 15 years or so, it, we've heard the term phosphine resistance come up more and more. So I was hoping that you could actually help define the term phosphine resistance and what we mean by that. Okay. Uh, no, that's a really, really good question, Ben. And um, first of all, insecticide resistance, uh, which is, is, this is true throughout the use of resistance, including phosphine. It's not simply that it's, you've got some insects that are difficult to control, because that could be for all sorts of reasons. But resistance that occurs in any insect is based on genetic mutations of genes that control susceptibility to a poison. And with those genes, they then give the uh, insect the ability to not die when exposed to the chemical. In the case of phosphine, that's an amazing thing. And, you know, uh, these resistant genes just happen naturally. So a lot of people think, oh, we got this by using too much phosphine or using too much of a, of a pesticide. And it really, the whole point in change in genes and even evolution of any kind has to do with mutations. And we hear about mutations as maybe being a bad thing. The reality is that mutations are very common in people's genomes. I say people now, I'm going to mention that because I'll use the example but, that we know of. 
but basically almost all of them are pushed out of the body. The, the cell that has it dies, you know, because it's, it's mutating something that's important or something is being mutated in a gene that doesn't have any effect at all. Right. So I don't know if I should go into too much detail, but the idea that in your chromosomes, you just got these string of genes and the gene is, is the basic component of it is just a string of, of nucleotides that it's like uh, letters in an alphabet and there's only four letters, uh, but they go together and code for amino acids, okay, that make protein. So ultimately the product of a gene is a protein. In that alphabet, the third one can go to anything and it's, it's silent anyway, but, and it'll make the protein that, that is good. If there's any mutations in the other ones, usually that cell will just die out because it's not working to produce whatever it needs for the cell. Right. With pesticide resistance, it's just by chance that some mutation happens in the genes that affect the proteins that are important for dying. You know, they might be enzymes or something like that in the body and the tissues of the insect that allow them to not die. And that's what's happened with phosphine resistance. Uh, there was some mutation somewhere. And the whole thing about mutations, of course, if they stay, and they get inherited, then all the babies have that quality. <laughs> right, okay. yeah. yeah. So, so uh, that's how it spreads through a, a population, and a population being all of those bugs that are in the same place, like in the same grain bin. So, you know, there has to be a selection, okay? Uh, basically, it's not natural selection, it's human selection, just like we select for breeds of cattle or dogs or, or plants or something like that. By adding phosphine to a bunch of insects that may have that mutation for surviving, you'll kill off most of the susceptible ones. And then the ones that have the mutations for living will, will live and then they'll mate and they'll produce larger numbers of resistant insects. Okay. So it starts out with very few. You might not even know it's there, but once you've applied phosphine a couple of times, and, and also if it's a poor application, that could encourage some of them to reproduce and, and survive more than they might have if there was a really high, a good, good application. And, you know, that we knew about phosphine resistance, but I'm saying we, the scientific community, as far ago as 40 years ago. Oh, wow. I didn't realize yeah. it was quite that long. So we go and we will cite scientific articles in the literature from the 1970s, Okay. And it was done actually by the, uh, the group we call the FAO, which is a member of the United Nations. It's the Food and Agriculture Organization was concerned because they had been hearing reports of, well, it was insecticide resistance in general, but some specialists on stored grain went out there and tested some population and found that they were not dying to phosphine. And there were a couple folks in the U.S., actually this USDA lab that I've got here in Manhattan, a large proportion of those people at the time were stationed in Savannah, Georgia, great place to live. And they tested grain insects and found there was some resistance to phosphine, not big. And in fact, the re I've, well, I guess I, a little bit of my story, you know, I started working on fumigation, but when I got here in Manhattan, Kansas, I started working on phosphine resistance about 10 years ago. And it was my friend, George Opit from Oklahoma that said, Hey, I need to, do some work. We think there's more resistance, et cetera, et cetera. And my lab is set up for doing uh, fumigation research. So George and now other people have labs. And what, what it's needed is a way to handle this toxic gas and put insects in gas-tight chambers and then measure the gas you're putting on 
so that you can say, yeah, I put this many parts per million of phosphine and this many died after I take them out of the gas. Right. You know? Whenever we talk about residual insecticides, those are usually sprays or dusts that maintain their poisonous activity for weeks or months, wherever you apply them. Fumigants are like talking about integrated pest management. They are the hammer that if, <laughs> yeah. you find, if you find you've got a pest problem and you know if you want to make any money on that grain when you sell it, you got to stop it, that the, um, the fumigant is good for that. But the grain you've treated doesn't remain poisonous at anything. Once you get rid of the gas, hopefully you've killed a large number of insects, but you just got to really watch it after that. So right. if it's a good, good kill, you know, a few weeks before you sell it, or maybe it, it maybe early in the storage season, you see things getting out of hand. So you, you want to keep those insects at low numbers. So speaking about phosphine resistance and the, and the different types of insects that you've worked with over, well, actually 40 years, which I didn't even realize that phosphine resistance had been talked about for that long. Uh, so that's kind of surprising to me. But can you tell me what some of the particular species of phosphine resistant insects that you've seen in the United States, like what those species are and what's more prevalent than others and kind of maybe some of the geographics or the regions where you're finding some of these resistant insects in the United States? Well, and, and before our talk, I went and looked at uh, some of the records, and it turns out that in the United States, what we're aware of is probably three or four species. I mean, there's a couple dozen that are important in the U.S. And there's actually over a thousand worldwide that are stored product insects. And it turns out these are uh, the ones that are resistant are some of the most common or most terrible pests, most impacting. And uh, one for sure is the red flower beetle, Okay. That's almost everywhere that grain of any kind is stored, except maybe for beans. Beans yeah. are kind of naturally resistant. But, uh, you know, if it's wheat or corn or rice, it's called a flower beetle because it is also very common in flour mills. Uh, it's the number one pest of flour mills that they worry about. Now, as you know, and your other people listening uh, probably know, we don't use phosphine in a flour mill. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's highly corrosive. It shouldn't be used anywhere where there's heating and air conditioning, where there's telephones, <laughs> right. computers, really expensive milling equipment with electronics. Anyway, so just to go to the, the punch that we got, we sampled, and the other, the second one, because I'll tell you, we worked on these totally for the last 10 years. So you got red flower beetle is, is very common. It's what I refer to, and a lot of us refer to as a secondary or a, an external pest of grain. It doesn't go inside and make a hole in a sound kernel. It's feeding on broken kernels and grain dust, but it can, I mean, primary, secondary are not good terms. I don't like them, but they can still be really important because, you know, live insects in grain at the time it's sold it can dock you, you know, it can cause, you know, apparently, and the government standards are such, you can have any number of dead insects that are grain insects, but if you get two or more live insects, then your, your grade's going to go down. Right. So red flower beetle, the second one we did at about the same time was the lesser grain borer. Now, when it comes to an economic impact, lesser grain borer is terrible for, it's also got a narrower range of grain. It's the worst thing on wheat and it's really bad on rice, okay? I can grow it in the laboratory on corn, but it's rarely if ever seen as a major pest in stored corn. And the same thing with any milled products, okay? Certainly would get into birdseed because there's whole grains, but as far as flour, uh, animal feed or, you know, breakfast cereals or those things. It's it's not there. But when we looked at those, we did collections from all over the U.S. and also Canada. 
And it all depends where I have friends and colleagues <laughs> right? And, and where they're actually red flower beetle uh, was a little, uh, required a little more work. And some of your colleagues in the fumigation industry sent me some of these because they would need access to grain where they could find red flower beetles that weren't dying or were dying. It doesn't matter. But the lesser grain borer, we have a very good pheromone for that one. So I could just send my friends and colleagues traps that had the aggregation pheromone and they just put them out somewhere where they had a safe place and they, you know, they would just fly in. And so they were sending me tons of these things. So our geographic areas included the Southwest of the U S Texas, all the way down to the Rio Grande Valley, Rio Grande border up through the Midwest. And you can imagine in, in Kansas, we have a lot. Okay. Um, up into the Midwest and then out to California and then kind of up California and then throughout, throughout Canada. Now, Canada, just barely has a little bit of lesser grain borer, but they did have a bunch of red flower beetles. Well, what we did, we had about 30 different collections for both species. And for red flower beetle, about half of them showed resistance. Wow. Yeah. However, with lesser grain borer, we had 34 that we sampled and only two of them lacked resistance. Wow. Like some (laughs) level. Okay. And then I looked at the literature and found out that sawtooth grain beetle has been recorded as, as having phosphine resistance. So this is a little flat beetle that's also an external feeder like the red flower beetle. It's not quite as common, but we get calls about it and it's, it can be common in some grain bits. And in, in a lot of things like now we're talking about the, the higher value products, the pet foods and the breakfast cereals and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Now you might say, well, how do we know these insects are resistant? Well, there might be a hint from the person who sent them to us because maybe they weren't controlling them in the grain. Now, I, should, I guess one little detail about the lesser grain borers is we were using a pheromone trap and they were being caught outside and we found resistance in 96% of the population. So they weren't in a grain bin where somebody failed. But what we have is a little test that was actually developed 30, 40 years ago by the people doing the UN study. And it's called a, a diagnostic activity test or a diagnostic bioassay where we get the insects, they have to be alive already. And we work with adults. So they're nice adult beetles crawling around and we put them in a fumigation chamber. And for us, we use these very fancy things that were pickle jars and and we've modified them with rubber gaskets and everything. And with an entry port where we can inject fumigant, we can draw out samples. And we expose those beetles to a, uh, a very low dose, which is diagnostic, but we know, and the reason it's diagnostic is we know and this is 30 parts per million, perhaps 30 ppm. And that's lower than we want anybody to fumigate a, a grain bin, but it will kill every insect that's known to be susceptible. Okay. 30 ppm. Adults. Right. It's not true yeah. for eggs and larvae. So they would require more. On the resistant insects, they don't die. Okay. So we can do some, we, we do groups of, let's say, uh, 20, 30, 40 beetles. And if they all are walking around at the end, there's a recovery period. We just expose them for a day. And then we hold on to them for a week afterwards in fresh air with food. And some of them will appear to come back to life or they're, they're still moving around after the treatment. So they are resistant. And the other ones that are susceptible are just dead and they never come back, even though you hold them for a few days. Right. Um, so there we've got resistance. We can measure that if we had if we had 100 insects and 50 of them were still resistant and walking around, then that's a 50% resistance rating. 
If there were only 10, that's a 5%. But if they're all walking around, that's 100%. So that's how we got numbers on the percent resistance at these 30 or so places around the U.S. It is widespread then. It's not like it's just in some area. You know, and sometimes we'll get resistance of other insecticides where it's only Florida or it's only the Southeast or something. Uh, and remember, I said this is having to do with the genes. The insect that is got the resistance, we call them phenotypes, the resistant character, has to have two copies of the gene, okay? One on each chromosome. There's many genes that work that way. It requires that you have two copies of the gene. So that means both chromosomes had to have it. That means the one who has both copies probably had their mom and their dad uh, had at least one copy of the gene, you know? And if anybody's taken a general biology or genetics, they would know that if you had a, like an A and a B, you know, version of the gene in each parent, so you, they weren't, weren't AA and BB, one fourth of those would be all AA or BB. And, yeah. But if you have like an AA and then an AB, you get different ratios and so forth. And what we're doing is, is selecting for the more resistance. We're selecting to have both copies of that resistance gene in the ones that survive, okay? Yeah. And so those gene frequencies in a population, we can go in and in other ways, you know, measure how much of that, how many of, of that gene or what's the chance of an insect uh, having gene at a certain percentage uh, is in that population. So back again, before we, and, and in my lab, we've actually done a little bit with, with the genetics of it. But before that, we can just use that killing test and see if they survive. Right. You know, you mentioned there not being any specific geographic locale. That would lead me to believe that makes sense to me because I would think, you know, with a lot of the standard insecticides, we're treating non-food pests with those. Yes. And with fumigation being primarily, not always, but primarily used for stored product pests or food pests, I would think that the chance of resistant strains being transported through our normal food transportation channels is probably very prevalent. It probably happens quite a bit. So I, I definitely see where you're coming from. I think that makes sense. I, I would imagine we're probably transporting them through our normal commercial channels to all kinds of different areas of the United States, which isn't necessarily, well, it's definitely not a good thing. Right. No, absolutely, Ben. And that's uh, very interesting to look at that. And we've done some studies to look how it could spread uh, based on, on railroads or major truck traffic and so forth. And also what, what people are doing to their grain. So um, we had four or five different sites in Canada, okay, where my Canadian colleagues were able to collect insects. And, you know, I said that in, in Lesser Grain Board, we only had two locations that lacked any resistance at all. And I believe both of those were in Canada, okay? Hmm. And you think, what's different about Canada? They grow a lot of wheat up there. Yeah. Well, the one thing is the weather, right? They're much colder than a lot of the U.S. and for longer periods of time. In fact, they, they don't grow winter wheat, you know, over winters as a, as a little seedling. They grow the spring wheat, okay, where they grow it in the spring. They, they harvest it very late in the summer, in the fall. They store them in bins, but the reality is they don't use very much phosphine, Okay. So now we didn't check for the actual genes out of the Canadian ones, but we did look for phosphine resistance and it was low to non-existent. Okay. Now I can't really say that about Northern places. And in fact, we didn't do uh, states that were bordering Canada and that would be interesting to see, but if the less use of phosphine then the less selective effect that there is, okay. Sure. The genes might be there, but we're not going in and killing the susceptible ones very often because they rarely use phosphine. Interesting also, 
they have a zero insect tolerance in Canada. And you mentioned Australia when we were talking before that they also have a no insect tolerance, which is really hard to do. And yeah. our, our grain inspectors realize that the government, uh, federal, federal grain inspection service and all that. That's why I use the term of two or more live insects uh, in the sample. That's usually at the time that, that the uh, truck pulls up to the co-op and sells it. They check that grain right away. They get test weight, of course, yeah. but they look for insects and damage. In Australia, actually, a lot of my work was in collaboration with Australia. They were doing the same sorts of surveys on lesser grain borer down there. They've got it too, and red flower beetle, and we were doing it up here, and they taught me a lot. They've got resistance at fairly high levels. Now, I just mentioned that the same species are in Australia. So that's the other thing <laughs> yeah. is before we had lots of good restrictions on controlling where food goes, a lot of food with, infested with these insects was moving all over the world. Okay. And there was some time in the past where we, North America, probably never had a lesser grain borer or red flower beetle. But once, you know, Europeans came here and started populating things, it probably came over at an early time. And we could be sending insects to other countries as well, you know, but as it is, I don't think maybe a grain person could tell me, but we're not importing very much wheat or corn. Yeah, I wouldn't corn. think so. Yeah. So, so that is stopped, but we've got our own stuff uh, reproducing. And of course, India has a lot, uh, Europe has a lot of resistance and with the same insects that we're talking about. So around the world, you asked me which ones we have in the U.S. and I named three. There might be a fourth that's been studied, Indian meal moth. But in other parts of the world, there's a total, I went back and looked at something before uh, this podcast, there's about 11 or 12 species around the world that have been found to be resistant. And many of them are in, in European or, or Asian countries, but they're out there. And uh, the really, really interesting thing as a biologist and geneticist would agree with this, the definition of species is they don't interbreed with each other. So red flower beetles can't breed with lesser grain borers, and et cetera, et cetera. Right, right? Yeah. But the genes that evolved for phosphine resistance evolved independently. The exact same genes evolved independently in those two or three or 10 species. Wow, that's okay. really interesting. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think about that until you just said that, but that's a really interesting... I don't know if it's a coincidence, but it's certainly interesting. That it is in a way, but what it yeah. what it indicates, and this happens in insecticide resistance and other kinds of resistance, herbicide also, there's only so many ways that that animal or plant can survive the poison. And it's just the random effect of mutation that eventually there was one that survived. Oh yeah. And it's got to make it into the, not just in the cells of the body <laughs> in general, it's got to be in the cells that turn into sperm or egg. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, and that's, that's maybe a little tricky too, because, because that's a fairly defined area of the body, but there's only so many ways. And it turns out the folks in Australia who did all this genetics and the really hardcore stuff have found that same protein and the same mutation on the protein is what's in lesser grain borer and red flower beetle and others. Okay. So that's fascinating in itself, but it does prove that there is a way to become resistant more technical stuff on that to explain a little bit is the gene that they found for resistance was never thought of to be, uh, you know, people had theories, oh, it's got to be this kind of gene, this kind of protein, whatever, that's the basis of resistance. When they found this, they went, what? Um, because it, it codes for something that is so critical in, in the life of insects and humans and everything that usually it is the kind that's edited out or filtered out as 
you know, if there is any sort of mutation, they're gone because it doesn't work in the cell. So this is one that still allowed the cell to work. And it has to do with using oxygen. That's pretty important, right? For yeah, oxygen yeah. breathing. <laughs> uh, and it didn't kill the insect by just having that mutation. But there's not just one gene, okay? There are two different genes in the genome of the insects that are causing phosphine resistance. And that was determined because it turns out that there's actually two different forms of resistance in grain insects, okay? And it just has to do with how bad the resistance is. They're, and we're calling them the weak resistant and the strong resistant, okay? And this will affect what we're going to talk about on how to control phosphine-resistant insects. Um, the weak one will survive that diagnostic test in my, in my pickle jar at, you know, as I said, we were using 30 parts per million. Okay, that's pretty low. But of course, the susceptible ones would die at one or two easily, okay? Right. And, and they'd stay that way. So this one is getting a dose that's 30 times stronger, okay? And think of it in the grain bin they're surviving doses there that are 30 times stronger than what the susceptible ones are. So that's way off the expectations. It's not so easy to put it all together in relating the label to phosphine and the amount of amount there and so forth. But if any, um, you know, insect was resistant to malathion or Reldan, or even in, in general use in, in household pest control, uh, if it was 30 times more to kill it or that it was surviving, that's really bad. Yeah. Okay. So it turned out that there were insects that would survive the 30 parts per million, but then they would also survive 120 parts per million. And right. the, ones that, the general ones that were, would survive 30 would be killed at 120. But then a few of them showed up as being alive at 120. And those, the Australians called strong resistance. And then they started to look at the genetics and they found this gene that that I'm saying is really important for the biology of the insect was the reason for strong resistance. So there's two different genes that have mutated to create two different types of resistance. Wow. And in, in fact, the, the one for weak resistance, they're still working on what kind of gene that is. They think they know it. But to have the trait of strong resistance, that means surviving all sorts of phosphine, they have to be fixed for both chromosomes having the weak resistance gene, okay, hmm. both sets of chromosomes. And they also have to be pretty much every individual being fixed for two copies of the strong resistance gene. Okay, so, so now you've got something where there's two genes. One is on this chromosome and the other one's on that chromosome. They need to have been selected by phosphine use to now be, you know, this one is 100% weak resistance gene and this is 100% of the strong, Okay. Wow, uh, I wish I could do it. Yeah. That's so, so interesting. Yeah. So phosphine is interesting from an academic standpoint as far as resistance. Um, the strong resistant thing is, is bad news. We'll talk about that with how to fight resistance. But that gene is there. That's the other thing is the gene can be out there, but the insects aren't really showing the resistance feature. All right. So I did a study here in Kansas where we went and we looked, we used our little pickle jar experiment and tested for the weak resistance. And out of seven populations going across the highways of Kansas, all of them had some level of weak resistance. And so seven out of seven had weak resistance. And a few of them had, you know, like five of them had almost every insect showing weak, weak resistance. Well, this guy I had working in my lab was more into genetics than me, but I happened to have a fancy machine called a thermocycler that 
get you to do PCR, which now is coming up in the, in the general public. They hear about it, polymerase chain reaction. And we knew the genes you know, that the Australians told us about for strong. So we could actually go in these insects, crush them up and look for the presence of that strong resistance gene. And it turned out it occurred in all seven populations that we looked at, but only a few of them showed some strong resistance character by doing the high dose test. So that just shows it's just there waiting, you know? That's how a lot of genes are. They're just waiting, if they could think, until they become on both chromosomes and then somebody tries to fumigate them. Wow. Yeah. So it's almost like that gene has to be activated. And I'm not a biologist, so please correct me if I'm mistaking this, but it sounds to me like it's a dormant gene that becomes activated when we expose it to phosphine. Is that well, the accurate it's dormant. Way? It's dormant only because it, it is on a chromosome, but it's not hurting. Phosphine would still control that insect. Right. So the gene, okay. until, and then the gene getting together where it's on both chromosomes has to do with just mating, random mating. Okay. Wow. Okay. Uh, and so that's why I say that if you fumigate a bin and all the ones that are susceptible die, that means if any that are left have resistance genes, they'll mate with each other. And then the next time around, those won't die, their babies won't die, and then there'll be more and more. It's not always that bad because one way that you can get around the resistance is if susceptible insects fly in and mate with them, and then that dilutes the frequency of the resistance. Okay, yeah. So, so resistance is essentially being caused by us not through repeated exposure to phosphine, but by the process of elimination of non-resistant species or strains. Yeah. And even my own colleagues will say, well, it's for overuse of phosphine, but that's because it's selecting for it. It's not that it's stimulating the, the mutation to occur. Yeah. See, I didn't think about it like that. So this has been really interesting to hear that this is the actual case. Uh, I mean, I, I was right there with them. I made the assumption that this was due to repeated exposure to phosphine and then building a resistance to it. So uh, the fact that it's a random genetic mutation instead is, uh, it's, that's, uh, interesting and somewhat frightening, to be quite honest with you. Uh, well, as I, think, I said, all yeah, I'm sorry, but all all mutations start out random, yeah, and, and then they're selected for. But but there are some other resistances that that are stimulated. I think even for certain enzymes to happen and all that. This one is not based on enzymes that break down the chemical. It's just based on having a part of the cell that it doesn't die. You know? Right. So that's well, and as a result of of learning that there was strong resistance, we we actually looked for it more carefully in a few populations. And I'll, we were also sent things from fumigators like yourself. And one came from, I'll just say the Southeastern US, but we found that it, it wouldn't die under the normal weak resistance test. And then we did the strong resistance and it wouldn't die on that. And it was wow. about, yeah, it was about 90% of the insects tested had strong resistance. Well, we did tests on those and and we, we kind of say, well, your strong resistance, if you're a hundredfold more resistance, which is a lot, that means it takes a hundred times yeah. the amount of phosphine to kill. Some of these from these really strong resistant populations were 900 fold. Wow. We went as high as a thousand. And this one place in Southeastern US, we could only kill 50% of them. Wow. And we didn't go any further. So based on all this information that we've talked about, what, in your opinion, are some of the ways that we can actually combat phosphine resistance in the United States? Well, first of all, it's very it's important for any fumigator or any farmer, because it can be you know private fumigation, 
to develop an idea, hey, I've got a problem controlling the insects, you know? So, because really, and as I'll talk about later, phosphine is an awesome pesticide to use for grain insects, you know, if you have everything taken care of, you know what I'm talking yeah. about, proper dosage and sealing and all that stuff. So if a person fumigating is getting some survival and they think they've got their bins are all, all nicely sealed and they've temperature is right and all that, and they maybe it's gone a couple times with phosphine and they had trouble getting good control, then the textbook, if this were a textbook in entomology about resistance to a pesticide, textbook would say, switch your active ingredient. Okay. Yeah. So what you're doing there, phosphine is the active ingredient for killing. Uh, you need to find something else, some other pesticide to use. And that's not always the best thing because there are really very few, uh, well, there's very few registered fumigants. Let's put it that way. For yeah, yeah. In the U.S. <laughs> and I guess I could start out by saying, instead of just stopping, if we knew it was weak resistance, uh, or the second time, let's say you, you, you do a normal fumigation and you think, oh, I didn't kill them all. What's going on? You know, I would, I would allow it if I was the boss to go back and <laughs> right. do another, especially if the customer was saying, man, I got to sell this, you know, what's going on, do another fumigation that's at a much higher dose for a longer hold time. And there have been studies, again, out of your, uh, your friends in Australia, perhaps, that shows that that can kill the weak resistant insects. Right. Okay. So you use something that, and I, what I've said, even when I teach this in, in extension uh, presentations, is leave it as long as you can. I mean, what's the point of opening it? And, and the label doesn't say you need to stop at four days. Yeah, the label for your label for phosphatoxin, yeah. um, you know, will, it has a very nice uh, instructions for applying the pellets or the tablets. And it will, based on temperature, I like the nice little one that's based on temperature. Right, yeah. But also the long one about what you're fumigating, it gives a range of pellets or tablets per uh, per hundred bushels, and it might that range might go from 100 to 900 or something. But I don't have it in front of me, and it also might go for you know so many days, like two to two to five days, and then the temperature table talks about you know if it's a little cool, <laughs> you know cooler than 75, then go longer. You know, the label also says, do not fumigate below 40 Fahrenheit, right? Right. Right. I'd be worried at 50 or 60. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right, Maybe yeah. you can agree with that. Yeah. yeah. So, so let's say somebody thinks they've got weak resistance. They should make sure they do it on grain that is warm enough. Of course, as we know also with phosphine, phosphatoxin or aluminum phosphide, as we say, if it's really hot, then the gas might have blown off early, you know, and that could be a problem. Sealing better, waiting for, I don't know, cool weather that it might have to wait a lot. We're getting in the 90s <laughs> yeah. here in Kansas. And I think Illinois, you're probably getting it too. My, oh, yeah. My yeah. Son, I have a son in Chicago and he was saying, whoa, it's hot. Um, but anyway, if you can come back and do a higher dose for a longer time, that, that may kill the weak resistant ones. The alternatives, if you decide that you better switch active ingredients, and, and many you certainly and many of our users know there's a couple fumigants, but let me just name one you can't use, which is methyl bromide. Right, yeah. And for those not familiar with it, it was actually banned and stopped the registration by the EPA and so forth in our country and, and around the world uh, because that chemical is perhaps destroying our ozone layer in the atmosphere. So it's a bad thing. It's around the world and in, in all developed countries, it's stopped. Now, I should tell you, maybe you know this, that if you still have methyl bromide in your storage closet, you can use it. Okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the pre-phase out methyl bromide, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's still, you can use existing stocks, as they say. 
And maybe if you've got that as a fumigator or somebody has it, I'd say that's a good one to use as an alternative to phosphine. Perhaps it's heavy. It also definitely want to do that at warm temperature. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> it's a liquid uh, at a lot of cool temperatures uh, anyway. But the one that is coming along and was actually developed by Dow as an alternative to methyl bromide and now could be an alternative to phosphine resistance is Profume. And that's the, the chemical sulfuryl fluoride. Oh, sure. Yeah, I've used a lot of that in my uh, history as a fumigator. Okay, very good. Very good. So then you may know that also it doesn't penetrate as well as phosphine. That's what I'm told. Phosphine is a great penetrator as far as getting the gas through the, the spaces between the kernels. It's almost as light as air, whereas sulfuryl fluoride is a tad heavy. I personally don't have a sense for what that means, but what we do know also, I mean, it's not going to go through wet grain very well at all. It doesn't go through water. Okay. Now, having said that about water, uh, and I say, I go back to that. If any of your fumigators here uh, do fumigations for termites, then that is the chemical known as Vicane. It's the same active ingredient. Yep. Yep. Okay. So, so you drive around in the South, like Florida, I used to live in Florida and you'd see Houses covered with these uh, yellow and, and blue striped tarpaulins, yep. <laughs> they're getting fumed for termites with sulfuryl fluoride, with vicane. And the key thing about water that's there, and I didn't really appreciate it until I got into this grain stuff, is they will take the tarp over the house and then dig a little, tiny little trench around the outside, put the tarp down into that ditch, and then cover it with soil and get a hose out and water it. So they're using the water to make the seal at the bottom. Yes, Yes, yeah, all fumigants do really poorly traveling through moisture and water. Yeah, uh, well, phosphine itself will dissolve in yeah. water and, uh, and lose its activity. Profume and, and, and vicane will not even pass through water at all, yep. so they won't dissolve in water. And I'll just fast forward to the biology of an insect, and specifically the egg of an insect is based, and the bodies of insects are bags of water, you know, for the most yeah. part. But <laughs> an insect egg is pretty much only water until the embryo develops and eats up the yolk and they're ready to hatch. And it's well known, we've done it in our work and the registrant for uh, Profune will admit this, eggs are really difficult to kill with Profune. So that's one, but still, I'm not gonna say don't use it for fighting phosphine resistance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I know other fumigators who say, yes, they do. And they've told me then some of the challenges they've had, not so much with eggs, but for fumigating it. It's of course, you know, when you get to the part about why, why would we keep phosphine, it's, it's awesome because of the way you can apply it with tablets and pellets. There's also, of course, cylinder-based phosphine, but Vicane and Profume are all cylinder-based, okay? And it's more expensive. But anyway, it could work. So there's an alternative for strong resistance. Are there other fumigants? Well, you can catch me on this, but I've been told that carbon dioxide is registered for fumigation. It is, yes. Okay. In Canada, they used to use that when they exported wheat. So I was told, and the government was supporting it, but it's really difficult to apply. Would you agree? Yes, uh, it's really difficult. You have to hold it at a 60% uh, or higher for a very long exposure period. And with CO2's vapor pressure being as high as it is, that's very difficult to do in most circumstances. So yeah, it's not always a viable option just because of... Uh, how the percentage you need and then how long you actually have to hold it in order to achieve success on all life stages. So uh, it's there and it works in some really niche areas, but it's difficult. Sure. Well, it's interesting you say 60% because we did, we've done tests in my lab, not with phosphine resistant insects, but with other ones. 
And that's what we had to go up to. And even there, we didn't get 100% kill. Wow, yeah. People think about it. The concept, We have carbon dioxide in our atmosphere normally. We're exhaling it all the time, and so is a lot of all the green life out there. But the concentration in air is like 0.04%. That's really low, okay? And or 0.03. But 67%, really hard to do. So CO2 is an alternative. And I just ran across uh, something we're doing research with it. It's called propylene oxide. Oh, yeah. Yeah. PPO. Okay. PPO. It's a liquid at room temperature. And we've done a whole bunch of trials. And we know that it'll kill resistant lesser grain borers and red flower beetles. And then the manufacturer of it, uh, so it's labeled for internal use as a sterilant or something. And they list red flower beetle on the label. But really, that would be for cleaning up or fumigating a, a restaurant or a processing facility that is not really intended for grain. I don't know, but I've got this tank of proboxide that I got for free. That's a nice thing about, <laughs> about being at the university. Pesticide companies will sell you free stuff. If you yeah, <laughs> that's great. And, uh, so that one, you tell me if it's, if it's allowed to go in a grain elevator. At this present point, to the best of my knowledge, it has a pretty limited label. I think that's being worked on, but that's just what I've heard. I don't have a lot of firsthand knowledge with propylene oxide. You may know as much as I do on propylene oxide, but I do know that it is a viable fumigant for the industry. But the last time that I heard, the label was still pretty limiting when it comes to the treatment for stored product pests and in food processing uh, environments. Yeah. You know, and so the manufacturer may get something through that will work. Another one maybe you've heard of, another liquid one is ethyl formate. Yeah. Okay. Now, it's not registered in the U.S. What's interesting about that is it's considered relatively safe. And it's not because you can die in, in a high concentration. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what but they're it, intended to do is to kill things. So. <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't smell bad, low, low concentrations. And it's actually a food additive. It's, it's actually put in makeup and things like that because it has sort of a fruity smell. It is registered in uh, Down Under in Australia and form is something, it's got a commercial name. So, I mean, that, anytime something happens in a country like that, you think, oh, well, it could be registered in the U.S. So I can't recommend anything that's not registered. Some general purpose fumigators and grain pest control people have used residual chemicals. Okay. So that means a spray or a dust. And to do that, let's say you have a silo or a bin that you know has resistant insects in it. It's got a bunch of them. You got to do something. If you can turn it, which means bring it up to the top, move it over and then put it down in, a, in an empty bin. And while you're doing that, you're spraying on a pesticide. It's expensive, but that should work. So, you know, again, if you've got weak resistance, which is the most common one, you might be able to have a solution with a better application of phosphate. Okay. Well, I mean, that's good to know that it's still a viable option throughout all of this time, you know, that obviously 40 years that we've been dealing with phosphate resistance, uh, which it still baffles me that it's been going on that long. The one thing that I've noted is we have yet to find any kind of fumigant or replacement that's an apples to apples replacement to phosphine. There's always some kind of a puzzle piece that doesn't quite fit, whether it's the cost of the new product or whether it's the application process, temperature, whatever the case is. We just have not found an apples to apples replacement for phosphine. So I think that's one of the biggest reasons why it's so important for us to try to work on preserving this molecule because we don't have a replacement for this particular molecule yet in the industry. So we need to make sure that we're doing our due diligence and keeping that molecule alive and finding 
other ways to combat phosphine resistance without kind of throwing out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. I don't think the answer is not to just throw away phosphine because we found resistance. I think the answer is to find a way to continue to use it and find other means to treat these resistant insects. Um, whether that's an increase in phosphine dosages or whether it's some of the other products that you had mentioned, I definitely, I, I agree with you 100% on that. Yeah, yeah. So I only have one question left for you, and this is kind of an open-ended question, <laughs> so take it for what it's worth, but you've done a lot of study on phosphorine resistance and then fumigants and insects in general, obviously. What kind of advice would you give somebody that's new to our industry? And what I mean by that is the pest control industry. What kind of advice would you give them about the safe use of phosphine? Ah, well, yeah, we talk about safe use of phosphine. I mean, again, I'm not experienced with actually participating in commercial side. I've, I've actually been around when, when uh, companies like yours do fumigations. But, you know, what we get out of the books and what we know is any fumigant is a dangerous compound, you know, and that's what I tell in my talks is you look at the label for application and there's a skull and crossbones. <laughs> yeah. And, and so that tells it right there. You don't need to even speak or read English to know that. So a brand new fumigator, let's say coming out of the pest control industry where they've been spraying kitchens and, and homes or yeah. whatever, taking on fumigation, is to learn as much about the chemical as possible and, you know, eventually get and work behind somebody who's doing it, you know, be trained as a you know, student uh, working with somebody and be very aware that, that it's dangerous to use, dangerous to apply, dangerous to keep under sealed in a bin and so forth, you know, because some can leak out. But, you know, once the person is aware of that, and then they start getting experience from a fumigator, uh, particularly on the safety, then, of course, it's the important stuff. I mean, it's a gas, right? And it's going to blend with the air. You want it to blend with the air inside the bin or the structure. You know, it could be a feed mill or, right. or feed storage place that, you you know, it's metal, but, you know, you can change the lights or everything. But, um, you know, the one thing is sealing, okay? Sealing the holes, knowing where there might be uh, leaks and, and cover them, you know, like around ventilation fans at the bottom, probably want to cover that with a tarp and tape it up with duct tape. Uh, the vents up in the roof of, the, of a, this is a steel bin I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, those need to be closed. There might be other th places you could do caulking. In fact, though, we've done some leakage trials with small bins we've got here on campus. And even where the, the sheet metal is joining around the bin and there's bolts holding it in, there's some gases that leak out there too, you know? So I'm not saying use duct tape everywhere, uh, but just be aware of that. Somebody was asking me the other day, uh, talking about wind and why is that bad uh, uh, and not fumigating on a real windy day. And it's because of the change in pressure around that bin will draw the air from the bin out of leaks. The thing about effectiveness in phosphine is concentration and hold time and temperature. I think I've got, you can even go yeah. further and talk about moisture content of the grain. Moisture content in general, okay? You're applying these tablets or pellets, which themselves are not phosphine. They're a salt of a, called aluminum phosphide or magnesium phosphide, which has to react with water. Moisture in the air, that's what it is. Yeah. You're not going to pour yeah, water yeah. on it. We know that's another problem. Don't let it go into standing water. At yes, all. yes. Because <laughs> that reaction will happen fast and it's bad. But yeah, that, that things are moist, you know, that the grain is not super dry, okay? Because if things are real dry and the atmosphere is dry, the reaction of those pellets is going to be slow. 
you know? And now I'm getting at a safety thing. So somebody might get a reasonable kill, but then they go to move that grain uh, into trucks or into rail cars or something, and there still might be unreacted phosphatoxin in there that you got to be careful with. Yeah. But also just for getting the chemical up out of the pellets and tablets into the airspace of the bin or whatever you're fumigating. So with that, uh, not only moisture, but temperature. Okay, so that reaction, like any chemical reaction, will go faster with the hotter the environment is. Okay, and I mentioned how, you know, applying it in cold grain is not great because that reaction will go real slow. You know, ideally it should be something like 70 or so. Well, in Kansas, when we harvest our, our wheat crop here in a couple of weeks, the grain itself may be 95. <laughs> yep, yep. Going in the truck. And then, go, I mean, today I can barely walk outside because it's, it's close to 90. I mean, and it's humid, which is good. But So, you know, be careful with that. You're not going to cool the grain uh, necessarily to do the fumigation, but be aware of the dose you're using. So that's why I say use uh, as high a dose maybe as you can or as you're, you can afford and hold in a sealed bin and hold as long as possible. Uh, I've, I've worked with flour millers uh, in the past and of course, during, even during the time of methyl bromide. Methyl bromide was the fumigant for flour mills. Oh and yeah, I, I fumigated with it a lot back in the day. Very good, yeah. 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 So I was told, I mean, there's something like 220 flour mills in North America and every one of them fumigated at least once a year with methyl bromide. Yes, that was another fumigant that's been very difficult to replace. Uh, right. It worked so well in so many different environments. And I understand, obviously, for ecological reasons, we have to you know, remove it from that use. But I sure miss it in those environments because yeah. it works great. And, you know, the flour mills, normally they run uh, their operations 24-7. Yeah. Some big ones. So they could do it on a holiday. That's why these things happen on, on <laughs> yep. 4th of July, Memorial Day, right? And, and you got a three-day weekend. So they would do, and it really would take two to three days for a methyl bromide fumigation because you've got to vent it carefully. That yeah. would take a day. You really only get one day of treatment, but that'll kill everything if it's a good thing. And what this mill was doing that I learned from them is they, you know, they have raw grain over here. They have the mill itself. And then they have a place to store the, the flour before it gets loaded on rail cars or trucks. And they're loading every day yeah so what they use there is a phosphine product but it's magnesium phosphide which i'm sure you have a product oh yeah. yeah yeah and the interesting thing i always show the chemical reaction in my talks but it produces twice as much phosphine gas as does the aluminum phosphide so it, yeah it's it, a much faster reaction time faster reaction phosphine. time and it produces more yes. yeah it produces twice as much actually there's two molecules of phosphine produced whereas aluminum gives only one Right. So, so using phosphine the, the proper way, you know, applying it safely, which also could be done by adding as you're loading it into a bin. But of course, for IPM purposes, unless you're receiving infested grain, there's really no point in putting it on recently harvested grain because right. it's, it's early, early right. in the life cycle of any insects. You know, the insects are probably there, even though you've cleaned the bin, they're somewhere in that facility and they just take time. And of course, under warm temperatures, they grow faster than cold. So you may need to do a fumigation. And there are ways to apply it, and you know way better than me, to standing grain in a bin or silo with uh, you know, using uh, spears or tools, getting it into the bottom and so forth. Uh, and I'll let you teach people about that. That's, <laughs> sure. that's out, of, out of my area. But you know about the safe use of phosphine, yeah, definitely want to be careful because there are people that get, get sick from it or die. 
there's actually, that's one of those things you see compared to other pesticides, there's a few deaths every year that are recorded either with phosphine or with other fumigants. And they all have to do pretty much with improper treatment. One case where I had a man actually call me for some information, he probably wanted me to you know, talk to a, a court session, but it was where he was working around a rail car that needed to be emptied and he was doing something up at the top at the lid and there was still reactive phosphine going on inside. So that's probably where the grain had been cool, pellets hadn't all you know, reacted. So there's that too, you've gotta to be careful. And I guess the label these days talks about you know, having more care at the time of loading the rail car and emptying the rail car. Yeah, that's the biggest thing that I try to tell people, especially new fumigators. You know, the label is the law, first of all, you have to follow it or you're breaking the law, but that label, the manufacturer spent a long time and a lot of effort of study to put that label together so the product could be used safely. So as long as you're following the label, there's really very little chance. I mean, other than some kind of pure accident, there's very little chance that there's going to be danger involved. I mean, there's always a chance of danger involved, but as long as you're following that label, you're doing everything that you can possibly do to remain safe. Uh, Most of the accidents or deaths or illnesses that I've seen in my experience in the industry have to do with negligence or inexperience or just a pure accident, whether it's some kind of a storm blowing something open or whatever the case is. But most of it has been due to negligence, people Mm -hmm. that are not following the label. And as long as you follow that label, your chances of success, number one, are going to be much better. And then your chances of being safe are going to be much better as well. No, you said it. I use that same phrase uh, in my teaching. The label is the law. Yeah. All right. Well, I don't really have a whole lot else to cover. I want to thank you a lot for taking some time to discuss these topics with us today. This has been extraordinarily informative for me, and I'm sure it will be very informative for all of our listeners as well. I learned a lot from you today, and uh, thank you for that. I appreciate it. Well, you're welcome, and thank you for inviting me. It's always uh, great to share this stuff, and glad that it's it's going to be a service for people, I guess, driving or listening to a podcast. <laughs> yes, I, I definitely think it will. So thanks again. I appreciate it. Sure thing. I want to thank Tom for taking some time today to discuss phosphine resistance. It's a complicated issue, and we want to make sure we speak with professionals to help clarify its causes and to help combat it. The good news is that there's still many ways to effectively use phosphine with great levels of success. We certainly don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Through proper phosphine management, we can continue to use this very valuable molecule for decades to come. Okay, so we only have one more episode this season. And for this one, we're gonna do something a little bit different. As we've been talking about this whole season, we're gonna give you the opportunity to ask some of your questions. The last episode of the season will be aired live via our YouTube channel, and we've invited a panel of experts to weigh in on questions you've submitted over the last several weeks, as well as any questions that arise during the actual live broadcast. We're really excited about this episode, as it's our first live session. It's also the first time we've invited our listeners to interact with us and join in on the fun. And remember, if you have a question you'd like for us to answer during our live season finale, please feel free to send it to us at podcast at degishamerica.com or we'll always be happy to answer your question right away. You can find us at degishamerica.com as well as all of the main social media outlets. And so, until next time, I'm Ben Harl and I hope you have a safe and terrific day.